Well, if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Wes read the first 14 verses for us just a few minutes ago. I'm going to read the first four verses, but our study tonight is going to cover the entirety of the chapter, though uh, not as in-depth as you might think. Uh, But we are going to at least address all 35 verses in the course of our time together. So if you would, let's stand together in the honor of God's Word and the reading of it. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this, your word. We pray now that you would speak to us, that we might hear the truth, that we might see Jesus. Thank you for this time. We thank you for your love and care and concern for us. And again, may we be different as we leave tonight having heard from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the world of uh, texts and tweets and hashtags, uh, there is a common acronym people use today, and it took me some time to figure out actually what it meant, uh, but they use it to express their extreme fondness for and um, their strong opinions about people, particularly, I've, I've learned, uh, particularly athletes, Uh, that acronym is GOAT, and uh, it means greatest of all time. Why it took me a while to figure that out, I don't know, but it did. Um, And now it's, it's become so popular that it's not even just social media where we find it. You'll hear people actually saying it. They'll use it. Oh, he's the GOAT or she's the GOAT. And, and once it's used, you can bet a disagreement is sure to follow. Because not everybody shares your opinion or your fondness for a particular person, particular, particularly an athlete. And so the disagreement begins, it's back and forth, and because we want everybody to believe that we're right and we want everybody to know that they're wrong. And in those discussions, we primarily focus on things like uh, personal statistics, uh, statistics uh, number of championships won... Uh, the awards that they've been given, the endorsements that they have, or the amount of money that they're earning. It's interesting that very rarely does it ever, or actually their character and integrity never enter into the discussion. It's just all about those external things. And, And some athletes over time have even been brash enough to claim the title themselves. Uh, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and so I was very familiar with Muhammad Ali. And he was a self-proclaimed greatest. And nobody ever argued. But that's not just... That doesn't just take place in athletic circles. I remember going to pastor gatherings early in my ministry. 
And when I would show up, I I could guarantee the first few questions that would be asked. How many are you running in Sunday school? How much is your budget? How many did you baptize this year? Have you started to build a building yet? And really, what everyone was wanting to know in the midst of those discussions and asking those questions was this. Who's the greatest pastor? It's not a new phenomenon, and it's exactly what's going on here in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, the question is simple. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And while it seems very simple, it elicits a very, very poignant response from Jesus. And it gets that response because they're arguing. They're arguing among themselves. Who's the greatest? And there are a few scenarios that are going on. They could be in groups of three or four. And in those groups, they're talking about or arguing about if anyone outside of their group is actually the greatest. Or they may be in those groups and they're talking amongst themselves and arguing among themselves of who within their group is the greatest. Or the worst case scenario would be they're all together and arguing and back and forth and trying to one-up each other to determine which of the twelve is the greatest. Now, while they're in the midst of that argument... They've forgotten that, Matt, uh, that Jesus has actually discussed this exact topic just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 11. Because in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So they've already heard that, I mean, John the Baptist was in earthly terms or in fleshly terms, far greater than they were. So they already know they don't match up to him. But they've also heard that those in the kingdom, the, the least of these aren't, are, are, are much more greater than even him. But somehow that's slipped their mind. You know, John was great. He had an elite status. And at some point in time, that just... That leaves their mind and they're, they're back at it again trying to determine which of them is better than the other or the best of the group. And Jesus likes parables. He likes illustrations. So he calls a young child over uh, to be that illustration. It's a striking visual aid. And he brings him and it says, the Bible says that it put, he put him in their midst. Now, I don't think that he just kind of stood in there as the twelve gathered around them, particularly with uh, what he says in verse 5. So I think he probably... Uh, We're guessing, but he probably came and and put him on his knee, particularly in light of what he's going to say in verse 5. And we ask, well, what was his point? And he says, well, children had a slightly different status at that time. They were, as I was telling the children, they, they were loved and they were considered a gift from God. But they weren't the center of homes as some children are in their homes today. There was, there was no such thing as children's rights or there weren't any children advocacy groups. Uh, nobody had uh, bumper stickers on the backs of their donkeys or carts that expressed how their children were smarter than the others or how many athletic teams that they were on. And there's nothing wrong with those. I'm just saying that it was different. There was a, they held a different status. To them, a, ch- a child was a picture of lowliness and of humility 
because they were low in terms of social class. They were low in terms of their status. Uh, One commentator said that they had no self-determination and must submit to the will of adults who all knew best. So they were completely and utterly dependent upon the adults around them. And it's this example that Jesus gives. It's this child that proves to be that illustration. And so once he has the boy there on his lap, he says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And there are a couple things that we need to to notice as we look at that. First of all, he says, truly I say to you, is a very typical response, something he said quite often, and, and it was something to get their attention to say, you need to listen to what I'm about to say. It says to us, we need to listen to what he's about to say, because what he's about to say is the truth and nothing but the truth. And he follows that up with the word unless... And what he does by saying unless is he's immediately set the parameters and narrows the field around who is running for the title of the greatest. In other words, not everyone was going to be considered eligible for that title. There were, there were qualifications that had to be met. But notice he doesn't, what he doesn't say is unless you... Um, unless you share the gospel this many times or unless you read the law and the Psalms and the prophets or their Bibles this many times or if you pray uh, or spend this many hours in prayer per week or if you, uh, unless you avoid this behavior or that vice, you will not be considered the greatest. He doesn't say that. What he says is, unless you turn and become children, you'll never enter the kingdom And whoever humbles himself like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom. He says the qualifications for being the greatest in the kingdom are the same same qualifications for entrance into the kingdom. And entrance and greatness, entrance into and greatness within the kingdom required or involved a drastic change. It's about radical conversion. It's a matter of coming to terms with the real problem, which isn't outside of ourselves and it's not somebody else's fault. The problem is in our original state and in our natural state in which we're all born, we're at enmity with God. We're at odds with Him. We're in a rebellion against Him. We're in a rebellion against His law. And the problem is our sin, and we are in need of repentance. And so he says, humble yourselves. Be meek, be lowly at heart, turn from your sin, turn from your selfishness, turn from your self-sufficiency, turn from your self-centeredness and your pride and your arrogance, and turn to me. And then continue to live that way. Because life in the kingdom is, and being a kingdom citizen, is a lifestyle of repentance. It's a lifestyle of self-denial. It's a lifestyle of putting your own wants and desires to death. It's a lifestyle of submission and humility. And we would summarize that by saying it's a lifestyle of finding our identity and our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And... 
this was his message throughout his entire ministry. No matter how he said it, it always came back to the same thing. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Or he would say things like the least, whoever is least is great. And regardless, it was the truth. No matter how he stated it, earthly status did not determine heavenly status. Natural status did not determine spiritual status. A believer is not identified by his position or his power or his prestige. A believer is not identified by her rank or her influence. I mean, think about Go back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus was very clear that a believer is identified by an ongoing acknowledgement of weakness. Always acknowledging that helplessness, uh, the spiritual bankruptcy. There was a mourning of, there is a mourning of their sin in which sin being anything contrary to the word of God. A believer is identified uh, by a display of ongoing expressions of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is only, it only comes through Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. It's hungering and thirsting for His. They acknowledge their need for mercy and grace and extend it to others. They identify the identity of a believer transcends anything earthly or natural status, vocation, gender, socioeconomic level. It's about humility, placing the needs and interests of others before their own. They're identified by love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And all of these characteristics permeate every aspect of their lives. And of course, you and I know that that only happens due to a supernatural change of heart by the Spirit of God. It's only through that change. Had He not intervened, we would remain would have remained dead in our trespasses and sins. For our salvation is a gift from God. It is by grace that we're saved through faith. This not of ourselves. It is a gift. And so we're unable to boast. And so if we could summarize the answer as that child is sitting on his lap and as he's heard this question, we hear him say, if you're claiming to be great, if you're arguing about being great, if you're aspiring to be the greatest... You're not even close. You're not even close. And you need to turn away from yourself. And you need to turn away from these attempts. And you need to turn to me. You need to turn to Christ. And I'd like to just take a minute and say, if you haven't done that, if, if you've never considered that truth, if you've never humbled yourself, acknowledged your sin and your need of a Savior and turned to Christ to receive that forgiveness that He offers, I, I beg you to do that tonight. Or if you find yourself, if you have done that at one time, and you've maybe for a time fallen into sin, or you found yourself to be disobedient, and, and you've, you're wrestling with these disobedient actions and selfish attitudes and destructive patterns, would you repent? Would you find... Find forgiveness tonight in Christ. That is to whom we should look. Now, for those who like specific examples or how-tos, Jesus doesn't disappoint here. From verse 5 through the end of the chapter, 
he illustrates or provides examples of what greatness in the kingdom looks like. And those three uh, examples, I'm calling three specific actions. He also, they're also in the midst of those specific actions are three specific attributes. Uh, I want to look first at the specific actions of kingdom greatness. We ask the question, who is the greatest? Or the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And in verses 5 to 14, Jesus says, first, the one who receives others. The one who receives others. The word such that is used there in verse 5 suggests that Jesus is moving beyond uh, the individual or specific child to a larger group that the child represents. Mainly those that, he has just said, have become childlike and entered into the kingdom. He's speaking of them individually because of the importance of children and his love for children. But he, he's going beyond that to speak of those who, as we just mentioned, are in the kingdom. In other words, he's explaining to us how we're to treat one another. Those of us who are a part of the kingdom of God. And it's a very vivid picture. That word receive means both to take and to receive. And it carries with it the idea of of expressing or taking and leading by the or taking by the hand and leading and expressing affection and protection and guiding down the right path. So we see that illustrated as that child is sitting upon his knee and Christ taking him to himself. And so we get the idea of taking that child by the hand and and leading them along in the way that they should go and protecting them and caring for them and Illustrating that whoever is stronger in the faith should come alongside those who are weaker in the faith. And here's the best statement of the passage. Jesus says, when, when you take and you receive others like this child, you receive me. You take the hand of this child and you are taking my hand. And so we have this lowliness of this child and at the same time the awesomeness of Christ. And so with that in mind, we understand what follows. We understand the caution or the word of warning that Jesus gives to anyone that causes one of these or causes someone to stumble. We understand that taking hold of that hand and we understand him saying, now don't cause the one to whose whose hand you've held or are holding, the the one whose hand you're holding, don't, don't cause them to stumble. And in verses 10 to 14, he says, if you do cause them to stumble, you're not, you're not receiving them. You're actually despising them. And you're going to be held accountable. God cares enough for all of his children to leave everyone else to go for the one who's straying. He doesn't want any of them to perish, nor should we. And so we back up into verses 7 to 9, and he says that it's best to take precautions. Temptations are going to come. Temptations are inevitable. It's a a part of the world that we live in. And he says, woe to anyone if those temptations come to someone else through you. Therefore, our attitude, the attitude should be that nothing is too extreme when it, cause, when, it, when it comes to eliminating those temptations. Because sin doesn't just affect those who commit them. 
but they affect everyone around them. No one sins in isolation. The effects go on and on. Others are watching. Others are affected. So the precautions taken in the ongoing mortification of sin is not only for our own good, but for the good of others. For the good of those that we take by the hand and we lead. For those that we minister to. To the ones that we, we bend down and care for and protect. Those who are in need. Those who may not be like us. But not only does the greatest in the kingdom receive others, in verses 15 to 20, Jesus says the greatest restores others. Within the context of the kingdom, I've already said Christians are going to sin. We're going to sin against each other. And as hard as we might try, there are going to be times that we give in to temptations that that Jesus mentions back in 7 to 9. And we're going to stumble ourselves and we're going to cause others to stumble. and, And we have to face the fact that while we are no longer in bondage to sin... And no long, it no longer has dominion over us. We're going to give in. We're going to give in. And we give in to the temptation in, in our own flesh. And we choose to do the things that we shouldn't. And we don't do the things that we should. And while some of those sins are more egregious than others. And the consequences and collateral damage can, can be wide and varying. The offensive sin has a significant f- effect on all of us. And can break fellowship. And Jesus says those within the kingdom are willing to do the hard thing and humble themselves and seek to restore those who fall into those patterns of sin. Who fall into besetting sins and who who may even sin against them. And this restoration is to take place individually but corporately as well. And, And Jesus says something really, really important here. He says that the process particularly as it moves into a a corporate setting, that He's present in the midst of that. And not only is He present in the midst of that, but He gives approval of what's going on. And what takes place on the corporate level is simply giving physical evidence of what's already taken place in heaven. But brothers and sisters, we need to acknowledge that it's not easy. It's not an easy process. It's painful. It's, it's difficult to get sometimes beyond the pain and beyond the disillusionment and anger, but it must be done. And Paul says it's to be done in a spirit of gentleness and humility. We come alongside those and bring them along in gentleness and hu- humility. We restore them in gentleness and humility. And I think we have to be honest and, and say that very few churches do this today because it is so difficult it's difficult to do but regardless of how difficult it might be it is a part of kingdom life and those who are willing to do it and who do do it provide a level of accountability that's needed themselves to ward off temptation so there's A receiving, and there's a restoring. And then in verses 21 to 35, he says the greatest also reconciles with others. So there's a receiving, there's a restoring, and there's a reconciling. Those kingdom citizens forgive one another. 
They're not only willing to forgive one another, they actually do forgive because they must forgive. They're willing to absorb the cost that they're rightfully owed for the offense that they've experienced. And they choose to lay that down. Or actually, they choose to pay it themselves. Or themselves. They're willing to choose not to seek penance or reparations. They're willing to not hold the other to a list of demands that Scripture itself does not hold them to. And they're willing to do that because they themselves have been forgiven. They understand the importance of forgiveness because they have been on the, the receiving end of forgiveness. They who have been forgiven much must be willing to forgive much. And they understand that there's not a quota to be met. Their forgiveness is to be inexhaustible. Of course, we know that that doesn't mean that they repeatedly set themselves up to be heard or taken advantage of, but it does mean they don't seek retribution. It does mean they don't pay others back or, or return the hurt that's been caused. But they forgive. So the greatest receives others. The greatest is willing to restore others. And the greatest... Reconcile with others. But what are the underlying attributes? What is it that enables others to do that? And for the sake of time, I just want to list them. And I would encourage you in your time of Bible study this week that if you would want to go and, and make sure you're Berean-like to see if what I'm saying is in fact true, do that. And, and there are also questions for our small groups uh, to go through, and this will be included. But there are three attributes, I think, that underlie... Um, and they are this. One is sacrificial love. The undeservedly loved love unreservedly. I wish I could say that was mine. I read it somewhere and I don't remember where. But the undeservedly loved love unreservedly. So there's sacrificial love. Two, there's humility as we've been talking about. And three, there is a desire for holiness and maturity in others. Sacrificial love, humility, and a desire for others to grow spiritually. A desire for others to be conformed into the image of Christ. A desire for others to grow spiritually. Now with all that said, I thought it best to just say, let's all commit right now to go and be great for the kingdom. That's how I'd like to end. You ready for that? Does that sound good? Okay, you know I'm kidding, right? <laughs> because really that would be counterproductive. If I were to say, now you go and be great for the kingdom, we'd walk out that door and we'd all start competing just like the, the disciples. And you'd all be coming running back to me or running back to each other going, am I the greatest? Who's the greatest? And we'd undermine everything that we've just done. So I don't want to call you to go or to commit to be the greatest. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're in there with me to go and do that. Because the disciples were not only wondering who was the greatest, but they were also asking, how can we be the greatest? And, and really, if we read this and we understand what's going on here, Jesus really turns, it on, turns them on their ear. Because He's doing three things in particular. One is this. He's describing what those in the kingdom look like 
or how those in the kingdom live. Okay, it's, it's, it's broad and it's general in some ways, but he's, he's not saying, here's what you need to do to be great. Here's what the greatest do. And we know that the greatest, those that are the greatest, or that, that are in the kingdom, they had to enter in the same way. So he's describing what kingdom living looks like. Two, he's leveling the playing field. In, in, in a very real respect, he's teaching them that there isn't, by using the child, he's saying there isn't anyone outside of his reach, and therefore there isn't anyone outside of our attempts, and there, there isn't anyone outside our attempts to receive and to restore and to reconcile with. And we have to acknowledge the fact that because we're sinners, that at one point or at some point in time, we're going to be the ones that need to be received, that need to be restored and need to be reconciled with. So the the playing field has now been leveled. He's he's now said, you're all on, on the same plane here with everybody else, including this child. And finally, and most importantly, his ultimate end, as was always the case, was to point them to himself. He's pointing them to himself. Brothers and sisters, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. It's his kingdom. He's the king. He's the greatest. Christ is and will always be the greatest in his kingdom. And he's letting them know just that. They're arguing about which of the twelve are the greatest. And he's saying, it's none of you, it's me. How did he do that? Well, it's Christ who receives anyone who will call upon his name. And it's Christ who has received you and me. He's taken us by by the hand. He's lifted us out of the muck and mire of sin. He's cleansed us by His blood. He's washed us as white as snow. And He's now protecting us. And by His Spirit, we have an inheritance waiting for us. We've been received by Jesus. And He will receive all of those who call upon His name. Secondly, it's Christ who restores. Christ will restore anyone who acknowledges and repents of their sin. He's restored you and He's restored me. We were marred beyond usefulness and now we are back and we've been, we've been salvaged by Jesus. And of course, He's also the one that reconciles. He reconciles anyone who looks to Him alone for salvation. And it's Christ who's reconciled us to the Father. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He laid down His life for you and for me that we might be reconciled to the Father. He has ultimately reconciled us, and again, He will reconcile anyone. And I know I ran through the attributes, but I think some of you wrote them down. He's the one that has loved sacrificially. He's the one that that loved sacrificially, and again, again, dying for us, laying down His life for us, for sinners. He also was the one who humbled Himself. He took on human flesh and was obedient to the, point of cro- uh, uh, to the point of the cross. Showing us perfect humility. And it was Christ who secured not only our justification, but our sanctification. He also secured our forgiveness, and our adoption, and our glorification. 
What he has done has been credited to us. And he has also, again, fully and completely saved us. Uh, Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus Christ is the greatest. It's, it's settled. And he's been great for us. And he continues to be great for us. And he will, he will not disappoint those who come and call upon His name. He will continue to be great for them. And may we rest in His greatness. And may we rest in His greatness for us. And may we receive each other and restore each other and reconcile one another as Christ the greatest in the kingdom has received and restored and reconciled us. May that be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.